I would say like the architecture for B2C in our case for StatMuse, it's like <laughs> the opposite of what I like feel like I'm super into these days. It's like elastic beanstalk. We're talking like oh, it's yeah. elixir. I yeah, it's hate a, that. I do too. <laughs> I think the only apps with a really satisfying architecture don't actually have any users. Yeah, yeah. Is, is my can... experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the work. dev stack until we started having users and now it's a mess. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it changes things. It's just like you're constantly, you don't like build for scale. Elmore, founder of StatMuse, hero of AWS, code streamer on Adam.dev. Did I miss anything? I don't even know anymore. I, I've, I've spread myself too thin. I don't know. I do a lot of weird things. <laughs> yeah. So here's the thing. I, I found you on Twitch. And at first, I, I can't remember where I, I actually found that you were an AWS hero. But at first, I thought you were just an egomaniac. <laughs> uh, I was like, fair. I was like, totally AWS fair. hero? Like, <laughs> calls themselves that. And then I looked it up and it's actually a thing yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that I didn't know about. So let's start there. What is an AWS hero? Yeah. So heroes, I think if like I started my career 15 years ago in C sharp in the .NET world, if you're, if you've ever been a part of that world, I think they have Microsoft MVPs. It's like that. If you don't know what that is, it's like Google cloud experts. <laughs> There's a few different, every big cloud provider has a name for just people in the community that are sort of very vocal about their technologies. So I'm pretty into AWS and have been for six, eight years now. So I guess I've just talked about it enough online that you get recognized as like a figurehead within the community, I guess. We're sort of championing uh, AWS technologies. Yeah, I saw you had like an AWS podcast. Do you still run that as well? Yeah, so AWS.fm started because that domain was just too cool. I didn't know AWS let any AWS dot whatever domains go. And that one was out there. So I bought it and I was like, starting a podcast. And I did it. I think I did 30 some episodes. We ended up uh, like the last episode I did of that was with Dax. And it was like, I wanted him to just come on and be a co-host with me. And then we just rebranded completely. And now it's, it's tomorrow.fm. So it's a different podcast. We don't just talk about AWS. That was another thing. I felt like it was so narrow. Like I can only ever talk about one thing and there's a lot of things I want to talk about. So yeah, rebranded and reshifted efforts into a different podcast. Got it. Yeah. I, I love tomorrow.fm by the way. Oh, My only complaint you. is there's not enough episodes. Yet. We're doing two a week now. So it's new. We're going to see <laughs> if, it, if we can hold it up. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I go to the gym I hit the sauna. I listened to tomorrow.fm. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. It's so weird to hear. I'm sure you'll get this. Like when you hear somebody listen to the podcast, you just don't know if anyone's right. out there. It's, Analytics it's on podcasts are like, they don't really exist, right? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. I don't know what I can do with the download. Does, does that mean they listened? They downloaded it, I guess. That's close enough. You're just storing know. it on their hard drive. Yeah. Okay, cool. So you're an AWS hero. What You, you did podcasts. You talked about AWS. I'm guessing that be, that all stems from... You guys use AWS really deeply in StatMuse and, and maybe at your other companies? Yeah. So we, StatMuse, we co-founded in 2014. So it was right as I was sort of like being made aware of AWS. We actually started and built it on Azure and then hired our first like DevOpsy kind of person who was really in AWS. His name is Ben. And that sort of started the process of moving everything in StatMuse over to, to AWS. And I would say StatMuse was like a unique experience for me 
in that I was, I was running it for five years. And as a co-founder, I sort of had full autonomy to kind of like just play in AWS for those five years. So I really got hooked on kind of like event driven architectures and building out all these weird exotic serverless things. Cause we were just like a, a studio for a while where we were doing weird projects for random sports companies. So I got a lot of exposure in like on my own where I could just explore. And, and that really started, I guess, my love for it. Yeah. Just to, to clear things up for everyone who doesn't know, are you, are you the CTO of StatMuse? Is that the... I, yeah, I was. I co-founded it, in, like I said, in 2014. I was CTO until 2019. Okay. And then I took a three-year hiatus, we'll call it. My co-founder and I just didn't like each other at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a whole other like, startup story, I guess. Are but you friends again now? Or we're, Yeah, we're friends again now. So he okay. asked me to come back like six to eight months ago but I rejoined after three years off. So now I'm just kind of like, I don't even have a title. I'm, I'm actually just like a, I write code. I, I make things. And I see you're back to the, I'm back to, yeah, I'm an individual contributor. Exactly. Awesome. Back That's why you have, uh, you've de-stressed your life and can now stream code. Yeah, that exactly. Yeah, no, it's exactly <laughs> right. I don't have to think about the high level stuff. I don't have to hire people. I just, I get to build, which is what I like to do. Okay, yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And now, now you like to build with Laravel, is what I is what I understand. <laughs> I do. I'm very interested in Laravel. There, it's funny you ask that because there's just like this joke that Dax keeps poking at me that I haven't actually done anything with Laravel yet. I just tweeted about it, and it's true. But I'm very interested. It's it's something you you're aware of it if you're on Twitter. All these other communities, things that people are into, and they're really into them. And then when you finally break the veil and you peek at it a little harder, and you realize there's actually something really compelling there. That's where I'm at with Laravel. I just, I broke the veil a little bit. I looked at the docs. I set up a new project, that kind of thing. That, that's how I am with with Rust. I've never actually written anything like production, even close to production in Rust. But like, yeah. I've done the tour of Rust. Yeah, yeah. Like, the book. I, I look at how they handle errors and I go, oh, that's, that's Ooh, really yeah. sexy. <laughs> like, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't do anything with it. Because... Yeah, there's so many technologies I've never gotten past that with. So I, I, I don't want to like disappoint anybody now that they're very excited. Are you building something with Laravel? Probably, I hope, maybe. <laughs> We'll yeah, like my problem is I'm just too productive in Go at the moment. Yeah. And like too focused on building my thing. So like I just don't yeah. haven't gotten it's around. It's hard. Like when I think of another idea and I'm like, oh, I could I could build that in this new thing, or I could just do the thing I can do it really fast in, and maybe I just want to do it really fast. It's it's hard to break into new stuff. Yeah. Side note, I I guess I'm gonna actually put myself out there and embarrass myself a little. I don't know how to type properly. Yeah, I like on a learned. keyboard? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Like, I take it for granted that not everybody, like we had like in school, I think they had a typing class, like in middle school. Oh, I did, but I played flash games. So I didn't <laughs> learn. Uh, I love it. And so <laughs> I, I'm like a senior engineer, engineering manager, head of engineering. And like I type yeah. 75 words per minute, like with three oh, fingers on each That's end. not bad. I mean, no, if you're not using I'm the real typing method. For like not being on a home row. Like, yeah. Anyway, Is I'm that... unlearning right now. And it, now, so oh, now and I'm you're... just bad. Like you're trying to actually learn the, yeah, so like the real I, way? I've been learning for three weeks now. I'm resetting my brain and it is awful. Yeah. I'm bad in both. Like I can't type the way I used to. And I still oh, also no. cannot type on home road. It's yet, like so using one of the out. super ergonomic keyboards. Like you're just bad at everything for a while. Have you yeah. considered like one of the other layouts or something like Workman or Dvorak or whatever? Because if you're having to start from scratch, I've always wished I did something cool like that. Might as well start with the cool thing. Is Workman the one with the levers? Have you seen that one? You know I don't know. Oh, oh, the caracorder. That sounds like it could yeah, be what I'm like talking your fingers about. are on like little joysticks. Yes. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And you like do combos and uh -huh. like they go like yeah. 400 words per minute or something. Yes. I've got one in the closet. Heck I started yeah. to play with it and it's very hard and I will never learn it. 
<laughs> so yeah. I might try and teach my kids. Like if their first exposure to typing is just learning how to type at 400 words a minute, I feel like Ooh. superpower. Like it'd be oh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Cause like I get told that I need to try Vim and stuff, but I can't even type properly. So it's just a losing battle. Yeah. So when, when you say like, you don't know how to type, is that, are you somebody who would say, Oh, great touch typing. Cause people say that to me sometimes. And I'm like, you mean like, you mean typing? You mean typing? I'm, typing. Typing. <laughs> I'm typing. That's, I take it for granted that is that you don't touch, you have to look or you just, at this point, you just don't use the normal five finger approach. So with my, the old way I did it, I could pretty much touch type still. The only thing was if my hands got off, I'd have to look because yeah, I, yeah. like my, my pointer fingers weren't on the ones with the bumps. <laughs> yeah. I like the bumps. I like the bumps on the, the J and the whatever. Yeah. Like my, my left hand would be on like WASD because of first person shooters. They like, yeah, yeah. my. anyways, it's just like a whole nightmare, <laughs> man. I've spent, I've wasted way too much of our time talking about this, but unlearning things is hard. And like, we <laughs> It like is. Now I'm going to tie it back into into development. So one thing I want to dive into with you specifically is you co-founded StatMuse. You know all about AUS. I really want to dive in, if you're willing to, to some of the architecture of StatMuse, like how you yeah. guys deploy on AWS, because it's not every day that I get the chance to talk to someone who founded a B2C company. I've spent a lot of time in the B2B SaaS space and like how we think about architecture in that world is, is totally different. We don't care about SEO, right? Yep. All we do is we just care about getting like our data aggregated on time. Yeah, maybe we could just jump into from a high level, how did you build StatMuse and, and maybe what is StatMuse for, for some of the Yeah, listeners? no, absolutely. And on that last point, I think just the idea of B2C being unique, I, I'm only putting it together like in the last six months that, oh yeah, not like everyone else is mostly building B2B stuff and scale is totally different and everything about it's different. And I, I didn't put that together. It's like, why does everybody use Vercel or why does everybody do this and this? And it's just very unique. Not a lot of B2C stuff. I would say StatMuse just is a, what is StatMuse? It's just like sports statistics search engine with a lot of personality. <laughs> I told uh, my employee that I was interviewing one of the founders of StatMuse and he was pumped because he knew awesome. StatMuse. He didn't know who you were. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I prefer it that way. NBA yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah, it's it's like a search engine. We started just as a search, like a text box, just like Google. And we take natural language questions and then answer with originally just tables. And then we started doing charts and tables. And then we started doing like actual natural language generation which is just a nerdy way of saying it just answers you back like with text with english so but that's what that means is chat jippity, like we're talking way pre yeah we're talking like 2014 this was before uh yeah before it was really easy to do this kind of stuff i think the what we're seeing now is totally going to transform this space but even there's been iterations since we started StatMuse of other better tools we're built on like very old school NLP techniques. Stanford NLP was this Java library from the University of Stanford. I just realized, I don't know, is it Stanford University? Most the of University my career of was actually in NLP, so we can, we can geek oh, out really? a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm a data, like I am a backend engineer, but like at, in the B2B space, that honestly sometimes just means data engineer. Yeah. Uh, so did a lot with NLP on Twitter and Reddit, ingesting like very cool data and stuff. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about. Okay, so I also want to talk about, I don't know what the backend is, but we'll talk about that maybe later. When you say backend and I'm actually this, I'm actually that, I don't know any of those things. We started really simple. It's like we've watched the wave of things like Alexa, you know, with a whole voice wave where like Google Assistant and Alexa were in an arms race and that was the big topic. That kind of happened right after we started SatMuse. So we got a lot of traction on the voice platforms because you could ask questions 
just oh, like yeah. you would to a device and we would we provide an answer so we actually did like official deals with amazon and with google and we're answering sports questions on those platforms we did it with like athletes voices so like you asked a question about peyton manning and he would come on and tell you about his career answer the question in his voice anyway did a bunch of weird stuff and architecturally i would say it's reflects all that weird stuff like eight years of building like people think like you sat down and you like diagram out how your your, your application is going to be built and then like you go and build it but really it was just like something different every year to meet the needs of that year and we've really only grown a lot in the last two years i think okay five years at statmuse my first five years i don't know I think we did 10 million searches in those five years and now well, we don't do leave more... if things are going super well right <laughs> yeah yeah they weren't going great our my co-founder and i our relationship was really strained after five years but I, I think we just lived long enough to start seeing the rewards now like more than two million searches a day wow. whereas you know the first five years that we maybe did 10 million something like that that's crazy yeah yeah it's grown a ton and we get like a, a million new inbounds from google so SEO is huge for StatMuse. We answer just tons of long tail sports questions. And I would say like the architecture for B2C in our case for StatMuse, it's like <laughs> the opposite of what I like feel like I'm super into these days. It's like elastic beanstalk. We're talking like oh, it's yeah. elixir. I yeah, it's hate a, that. I do too. <laughs> we've actually moved away from it in a few different, we've got a lot of different things at StatMuse. So there's, there's like an F sharp repo that's, it's deployed you know, on Microsoft boxes, but we're migrating it to .NET Core so it can run on Linux boxes and VM and containers and all these things. But that's like the natural language part. But then there's the web part, which is all like Elixir Phoenix. It runs on EC, it's just Elastic Beanstalk. And then we got a ton of little tiny little services that do different things like stitching audio files together to answer questions or generating images for social or not for social, but for like unfurl images, yeah. just a lot of different random stuff. We do use a lot of like modern serverless stuff for new things. And we are rewriting the whole web app actually in Astro. So moving away from Elixir Phoenix. Anyway, okay. that was a, a lot of thoughts about what it's architected with, I guess. No, that's great. I, I think the only apps with a really satisfying architecture don't actually have any users. Yeah, yeah. Is, is you my can... experience. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the work. boot dev stack until we started having users, and now it's a mess. <laughs> uh, yeah. It changes things. It's just like you're constantly, you don't build for scale. You like build for whatever scale you need, and then you're constantly finding you have to change things as it starts to grow. And we've, that's been no different for us. Like we've had to make a lot of different changes. To like alleviate bottlenecks, we we would like crash every Super Bowl because for whatever reason we get more questions on the Super Bowl than any, and it's not even like the NFL is not our biggest sport, but that was our biggest scaling problem, you know, a few wow. years ago, and now we sort of solved that. But like you're just always solving those problems; it never goes away. Okay, so you mentioned you have this event-driven architecture somewhat. So you've got you've got kind of your your front end in now Astro used to be Elixir Phoenix. And then you've got all these events going on in the background. You're processing them. What do you mean? So just to give you like you and the listeners some context, we did have an episode with Dax where we talked about serverless um, in, in some amount of depth. But what do you yeah. mean when you say event driven? I don't think we used that word once when we were talking about serverless. Yeah, it's, it's this idea. I, I don't know. Some people say, I think it's tied into the ideas when people say microservices, like lots of different disparate systems that communicate through message buses, I think is kind of the idea. And when you uh, say message bus, are you talking like RabbitMQ, Kafka, like, SQS? For me specifically, yeah, SQS, SNS, more of the AWS first party stuff, just because that's 
I don't know. I've drank the Kool-Aid. Like I'm pretty invested in what I can do in an AWS account. Yeah. But yeah, same concept. Any any event bus or message bus. I think ultimately the event-driven thing is, is just a rebranding of serverless. I think that's that what I've taken from it. the people who like the serverless DA team, the serverless developer advocacy team at AWS. They talk a lot about event-driven architectures. So I think they've rebranded this idea of what people used to call serverless now is just this sort of watered down marketing term, but event driven architectures is not watered down. It's like you build these systems that are very resilient. They're very hard to monitor, <laughs> very hard to figure out what's going on at any given time, but they, they've got all this fault tolerance built in and it's not, it's like the opposite of a monolith. But I think the microservices term is maybe not right. I don't know. I don't really know what microservices are. <laughs> like what is micro? So how, how big is it before it's not micro? I don't know. Yeah, that so that I completely agree with. I've spent a lot of my career in like microservices. Yeah. But I, I think that's the wrong term. I think services is maybe the yeah. right term. It's like it services, all kinds of different sizes. <laughs> yeah. Does all does your app like run in one process on right. on one box or does it not? And if it doesn't, yeah, then, yeah you kind of have services. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> kind of how I think about it. Okay. So event driven. One of the ways that I think about it is the idea of okay, if you have if you have different services that do different things and they they communicate over some synchronous protocol like just HTTP, right? Yeah. Making chaining like HTTP requests yeah, yeah. in the services, maybe that's not event driven. Whereas if it's more like pulling from a queue that is event driven, is that how you think about it, or would you I, say yeah. even like synchronous stuff can be? Like, I think that makes sense to me. I think the asynchronous part is is kind of part of the definition in my mind. You've got these very stateless services that are communicating asynchronously and responding to things i know lego is a good example like they've put out a ton of stuff just about how they build event-driven stuff at lego where you've got like an order taking place and that ends up somewhere and it gets picked up by other things they got multiple things maybe the responding famous to those. tech company LEGO. yeah <laughs> they really are like they're like the famous serverless thing i don't know <laughs> something about lego they've become this champion of of serverless technologies it's really sheen bristles at at Lego, who's he's a, a hero, uh, AWS hero. He he sort of like started the modernization at Lego and building out all this serverless stuff. And now they're just kind of like this flagship. Like, look what they've done with event-driven architectures. Got it. Okay, we kind of understand this event-driven architecture. So you've got your your front end in now Astro. You've got mm -hmm. some sort of event system going on in the background. You're using SQS to communicate messages around, like why so, so you're like mostly a search site how does uh, how yeah does that work? no so stem actually isn't event driven it's not using oh. any of the modern the modern like serverless stuff we have some serverless pieces but they're all like ad hoc services they're mostly multimedia stuff for the most part Statmuse is a monolith it's been this giant elixir phoenix app now it's going to be an astro app which maybe like from an infrastructure standpoint is going to be more distributed like the astro site will run in lambda functions and you know cloudfront all that sort of modern yeah. serverless web stuff whereas our elixir phoenix thing is just running on an ec2 instance so it's it's much more monolithic both in the code like, base it's literally and, just an ec2 instance no well no on the, top of it. It, no it's got a load balancer and and scaling groups and all that like it, there's okay. multiple instances but it's literally just we run this elixir process with all these very specific environment requirements that I don't know. It could be containerized, but right now it's just literally running on EC2. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, How? it's go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I mean, we don't do the event driven thing. It's it's more like that's where my career is at this point. And it's just funny that we started SatMuse back before that was even really a thing. So it's the thing I work on every day with SatMuse is still using pretty dated uh, deployment practices 
Whereas the thing I talk about all day, it's just the whole thing with like tech Twitter. Like we all yeah. talk about all these modern bleeding edge things, but we, what we actually work on every day is like elastic beanstalk. <laughs> yeah. And I actually think, you know, it, it can be problematic. And this is why I love bringing people on that, that have like years of experience that are in the trenches, because I think a lot of times for, for like newer developers hanging out on Twitter, it can, it can seem like the entire world is Astro and serverless. It's yeah. like most jobs out there, you're writing some nasty legacy code, yep. fixing some crazy bullshit. And, and there's no such thing as this nice, clean stack that you learned in your last YouTube tutorial. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that can sum up tech Twitter better. It's just, it's, it's so disconnected from reality. And you realize how little of a sliver it is even of developers that are even extremely online, let alone talking on Twitter. Then you got the old, all these other communities, Reddit and Hacker News and wherever else. Yeah, the real world is messy. It, it doesn't come across on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't know how we talked about your architecture without talking about the database. I imagine StatMuse hmm. has some crazy data requirements. What, what yeah. do you do there? So there's a few different pieces. There's the historical sports data. It, like we have this very comprehensive sports database that's got you know, individual player statistics going back really far. It, it was literally this world-renowned sports statistician that we hired, Jessica Batko. He worked at StatMuse for five years. He had built these these himself. Like, they're the best sports databases in the world. They, they like powered... a Moneyball type guy, if you've seen that Yeah, movie. exactly. He worked for a lot of teams in the NBA doing, like, analytics stuff as a third party. Yeah, and he had built something called Basketball Reference, which is, like, the de facto database for NBA stats on the internet. That's like this big historical sports stats database. That's what like our natural language piece, that service talk, you know, it queries that database to get answers to questions. But then we have like, obviously other databases that power each of these services. So the web thing has its own database and that's where like user stuff. And now we have subscriptions, like a payment concept. All of that stuff lives in just a Postgres database. It's RDS. Postgres, okay. Uh, but the, I think the, so the sports reference database is MySQL running on RDS. I think it's actually Aurora. The Postgres one is just straight RDS, not even Aurora. And then we have a SQL Server database that I can't remember what it does. MySQL, uh, <laughs> Postgres, and SQL Server. Yeah, yeah. The whole so, SQL stack. Yeah, the whole thing. So the F-sharp service interacts with a, a SQL Server database, but I, I honestly don't remember exactly what's stored in there. I think it's other kind of metadata on top of the sports data that's needed to, to build up queries and stuff. I was getting ready to judge the amount of AWS Kool-Aid that you drink on a daily basis <laughs> on if you were going to say that you use DynamoDB or not. No, yeah. I, and I use Dynamo a lot in talking on Twitter. <laughs> and things I've done that no one uses, I use Dynamo. But the things that I've built, like StatMuse, that actually have usage, it's MySQL, Postgres, and SQL Server. So yeah. there you go. Man, if only like real-world applications made sense for tutorials. It would, it would give so much more real world experience. The problem yeah. is it would just be so unbelievably boring and take it's so boring. long. Yeah. <laughs> like I realized when I work on StatMuse on stream, like this stuff is not as fun to watch as I'm going to make a new project today. We're going to use the latest thing yeah. that Twitter said we should use. That's just so much more exciting. So it is unfortunate. Which HTTP, like debugging, I'm like, which HTTP request has a typo in the like key of the JSON. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's like where I spend a lot of my time. <laughs> uh -huh. It's not quite as entertaining. Yeah.
Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. So now we're getting to the part of the podcast where I'm going to try to bait you into saying something controversial Ooh. so that I have a nice hook. Yeah, you probably won't have the... to try too hard. I've been getting into a lot of it lately. Go I noticed and I absolutely, <laughs> I've been enjoying it. I tell my wife about all the Twitter drama. She loves it. <laughs> cool. I, I guess actually before before we get into the baiting, or maybe I'm just saying that, what would you change? And I guess you already mentioned that you're changing Astro, but what would you change about StatMuse? If you were rebuilding a site like StatMuse today, how would you recommend new backend developers like our audience kind of approach that problem? What what technology do you use and, and, and how would you do that? So that's a great question. Today, things have changed so much. In fact, it's, it's crazy, the timing, because yesterday, HoopsGPT.ai just launched. It's the guy, the Rahul Ligma, for the, the whole Twitter layoff thing. It's that guy. No joke. He launched, like, basically StatMuse, but powered by GPT. Okay. So StatMuse made it's like it. like prompt engineered to talk about sports. Yeah. So the way it works is, like, they actually have some sports data in a database like we do. And they use GPT to actually, like, it's called GPT SQL or something like that. It's, like, formulates SQL queries based on your database schema and the natural language question, that's the approach. So there's just this whole new world now where I don't know if I were building it today, like if you asked me that three years ago, I would have said, oh, we would have used one of the like more modern NLP stacks because there's just been waves of better ways of doing it. Today, I don't know. I don't know if it'd all be just one big GPT app. The problem with that, I, I don't know how it works from a money standpoint because now that we do millions of queries a day, I can't imagine what our like open AI bill would be. I guess we'd have to build our own LLMs. Large. It'd be large, right? <laughs> I don't know how, like we're starting to monetize searching on StatMuse, but we could have never made it to this point if we were having to pay for a whole bunch of compute in the compute side. Like it's just not free, like the GPUs involved, all that stuff, but it's interesting. It just removes so much complexity. Like the kind of stuff we had to do <laughs> with Stanford NLP, uh, you just can't unsee that stuff. And it's so hard to maintain like, it's much more like manual approach to answering questions in an intelligent way. Today, you've got AI and you're just like, I just use the AI thing. I don't know. I get that. I'm a, so I don't know how much you know about boot dev, but it's basically this, this place you learn backend development. We do kind of this gamified learning. And now we have this AI tutor that like answers your questions. He's a little wizard bear. <laughs> That's awesome. He's got a lot of personality because, you know, GPT can, can do yeah. that. But yeah, it's it, it's it's insane, especially with GPT-4 now, like what I can throw into a prompt. Like before, if you wanted to train a model to do yeah. something interesting, you needed massive amounts of data. And, and the way I'm thinking about GPT and how I'm using it is like, now I have this like magical model that's trained on all the data yeah. and I just need to give it three or four pages of content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just the little specific, like you just need to get it into your headspace. It's yeah. really incredible. It, somebody said that on, I think on Twitter, that it, it helped me think about the whole thing better. It's like the the big wave here with these LLMs is not about them as knowledge bases. It's about reasoning engines. Like they're good at reasoning. And if you're like focused on that they hallucinate and that they spit out in incorrect information, you're missing it. The point is we'll be able to point them at real good data and they'll be able to figure out how to come up with answers and solutions to problems. Like it's about reasoning and they just needed all that data, all that context to become really good at reasoning. It makes sense. It's pretty exciting and scary. Yeah. One thing that's really interesting to me is to think about the difference between what a non-deterministic thing can do, like an LLM, 
yeah. versus a deterministic system. Because like people have said some pretty crazy things about how AI will just do the whole thing now. It's like sometimes you really don't want non-determinism. Like when you yeah. click that button, you probably want it to do the same thing every time in yeah. 90% of scenarios. But finding like where where that matches up, like sometimes you don't. Like with chatbots and stuff, like you really don't want the same thing. That's just like a crappy wiki. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it's like we're we're dealing with this as Sam. This is very top of mind because we're a very deterministic system built on a whole lot of complicated rules around the English language to solve sports questions. Uh, and then you've got this new wave with LLMs where they may not always be correct. And when is it really important that you know somebody has a question? They're placing a bet in sports. That's what, that's what we get. They want to know. They've got good information. So it's like this balance. But I think it's going to end up just being these LLMs, these reasoning agents interacting with good sources of truth and knowing how to use StatMuse basically on behalf of people. I think there's going to be a, maybe it's just the new way search works. If it's just a fundamental change in the way search engines operate on the internet, that's, that's another way of rephrasing all that, I guess. Yeah, for me, it really came down to the context. So like I launched pretty quickly this like kind of AI tutor that would help you understand code. So you'd be like doing a coding exercise and on the right-hand side of the screen, you'd have your code. And I, and I launched this feature really quickly where you could just like highlight some code and send it to ChatGPT and it would explain yeah. what it does. And it worked okay. But then on the next iteration, I, I changed the prompt to have like in its prompt, hey, you're a tutor, here's the correct code that the student is will work oh. for the student and here's their instructions and here's what they're supposed to do. And like when I made that change, it was like 10 times better. Yeah. Um, because it's now this it's whole give, new like, way really of thinking. Good. Yeah. And I don't know if we have to think if it's just product or how much it affects engineering as well. So far for me, it's been mostly changing how I think about product, but yeah. I, I imagine it'll change how we think about engineering. I, yeah, I think so. I think Simon Wardley, who I look up to a lot in the serverless space, he, I don't know if you've ever seen Simon on Twitter, he puts out, he's the guy that does mapping, Wardley maps, but it's like this conceptual mapping framework. He's just very like future thinking prognosticator. He's been predicting serverless for like 15 years. And then the timelines, he like has it all laid out, but conversational programming is the next thing after oh, serverless yeah. that he's predicted for, for so long. And it, he's just put out some tweets recently because it's it's happening. This is actually this is what I've been talking about. Here's how it's going to look. I would I would recommend looking up his stuff. He's really really bright. That idea of conversational programming is interesting to me. Is the idea that you you have a conversation with the computer in order to produce some some amount of code that you then save statically, or is it like going a step beyond where it's no we're just like training other neural nets to do our programming for us? Yeah, probably both. Probably like in the short term the former and then over time the latter I, I think like right now it's cool to like just get faster at writing the code we were already writing and using ai to help us do that and then i guess training ai you know these models to output good code and write their own things seems like a natural step in the evolution like they don't need us necessarily leading the charge but then eventually like why why have that intermediate step why have it write python <laughs> yeah when it could do something more interesting than that presumably. So actually I've, I've thought a bit about this and I think a month ago I would have just completely agreed. Yeah. Like why are we writing these silly programming languages? But let me use an analogy. Have you ever been in one of those product meetings where like there's an argument about whether a piece of code actually is a bug or not a bug because you can't agree on the expected behavior? Yeah. 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 So I see this future where if the code isn't, if what is produced by the L, the L, 
why can't I talk? <laughs> the large language model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the code that's produced by that isn't deterministic and like inspectable by a human or by another ML, uh, LLM, like yeah. you'll run into these like really weird scenarios where even if you're able to communicate to the like bot what you want, you won't be able to necessarily inspect it to see yeah. like, what the current state of affairs is. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I don't know. My brain I just like feel like it has to end up being some inspectable code that like, yeah, it may be. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know 20 years from now what all this looks like. If just the trajectory, the pace, I don't know. It feels different. I, I hate getting bought into hype stuff, but this AI stuff does feel different. It feels fundamentally different. And I don't want to deny it, but I also have no idea how to think about it. Like what's, what's coming. So it's just kind of like riding the wave, I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I feel that. Okay, my, my my final set of questions. I want to talk a bit about JavaScript land. So mm, you're spicy. moving, yeah, you're moving <laughs> from Elixir to Astro. Astro is a meta framework. I've never used it. Yeah, so Astro is interesting. It's like, <laughs> it's like a a wrapper on top of Vite. It's okay taking care of. Really, it's it's more than that, and I shouldn't distill it down to that. But there's actually some platform or some frameworks that are like replatforming on Astro now. It's becoming so solid. Solid start was I think built on Vite. Now they're going to build on top of Astro. Bling, which is Tanner Lindsley's new thing, is architected on top of Astro. So Astro is becoming this like layer above Vite that's got more web stuff, more opinionated stuff built in. The way it looks today, like getting out of future talk, it's basically like PHP, but it's TypeScript. You just write HTML files. You had to slip it in there. You had, <laughs> <Yeah>. to... <laughs> had to shill PHP a little bit. <laughs> you, you've got fences at the top of the files. Otherwise, they're HTML. No, they're not HTML. They're, they're like JSX-E kind of-ish. Okay. They're more like HTML. They're a mashup because it's like you don't have class name anymore. It's just class like HTML. But at the same time, you can use a lot of the syntax to like embed stuff into like when you're when you're escaping and trying to put, you know, dynamic values in the template, it looks like JSX in that way. Or when you're doing like a for loop and you're creating list elements or something, but you just write like any TypeScript you want or JavaScript at the top in the fences. And then you can use that code, that data, whatever, you, you know, variables you've instantiated or whatever to render the page. So it's perfect for StatMuse. It's a perfect marriage of like use case and technology because we could we could have built StatMuse in PHP. It probably would have been great. It just takes data. How much is Taylor paying you? <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I get nothing. It's so funny. The the whole Laravel thing. I've I've pumped up a few things where I get excited. I'm just very excitable. No one's ever come at me the way they have with the Laravel thing. It's like they really <laughs> think I'm getting something out of it. Like I'm getting a Lambo. I'm not. I get nothing out of talking about Laravel. I promise. <laughs> okay cool all right adam adam is not being paid i'm not being paid no one pays me to do anything just stat news yeah when you release your tax returns we'll believe you (laughs) Uh, (laughs) okay you're you're doing it in astro but recently you've talked about how much you don't like javascript let's talk about why really quickly what's what's wrong with the javascript ecosystem what makes you upset about it how do we be better yeah okay so there there's a few angles of this this is a back-end podcast Mm-hmm. And JavaScript on the back end just is a whole, it's, it's a whole community. It's a whole movement. It's a whole thing. And that's when I say I don't like JavaScript, it's mostly the JavaScript ecosystem. And it's really like a vibe thing. I, I don't know. It's not, I don't like the way Node.js is implemented. I don't care. I don't get into that kind of stuff. 
and I guess even then there's multiple JavaScript runtimes. So I, I don't care about all that stuff. It's just more like the people that have formed around this community. It's just such a dramatic culture. And it's just, I don't feel like other, like Laravel dipping into that community on Twitter. It's just such a different feeling. Astro similarly. And, and this is like, we're, we're, it's hard to now differentiate between Node.js and different frameworks. There's specific frameworks and specific companies that have grown up in the Node.js space that have created a culture I'm not a huge fan of. Astro feels like a breath of fresh air. I realize that's JavaScript. So it, it's something more than just JavaScript, I guess. JavaScript is dumb. Look at what it does. Look at these dumb code examples. Why does that equal true and that equals nan? There's that stuff, but I don't care too much about that <laughs> stuff. It's mostly the community, I think. And, and then there's like the NPM that you get it technical. It's like the whole NPM landscape. There's no uniformity to like, this is the way you make a package and it will be good. And what is a good package? All of that is a huge problem that you just don't see with other backend languages. They generally have better package managers and a better uh, sort of ecosystem of packages to work with. You know what you get and all the docs are uniform. Everything in Node.js just feels so scattershot. And so there was never anyone making the decisions. It's just everything for everybody. Okay, I've said enough. I've said enough bad things about JavaScript. No, you haven't. I have to bait you into more okay. bad things. But <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Like performance is like a whole thing. Node modules having 72,000 folders. Like yeah. when you create a boilerplate app, like all that stuff is-, is And is then we have rough. like multiple package managers. Like, do you use Yarn or NPM? Oh, is it Yarn right. 2? Or are you on PMPM now because you're cool? There's just, we have so many stupid decisions we have to make in the JavaScript ecosystem every single day. You have to configure Webpack for 13 hours oh, until you yeah. finally decide to switch to V. Yeah, it's the whole thing. Yep. And then you've got your tooling with ESLint and Prettier and TypeScript and making all those work together and package.json. I just hate all of it. All of it. I think, so here's here's one of my theories. I'm interested to think to hear what you think. I think part of the problem, so like we all have confirmation bias in this industry and it's like pretty... Sure pretty crazy to admit if you don't like i've been yeah i've been writing go for six years i just default to go if it yeah. fits for the use case yep because like i'm productive in it yep i think that there's like this this idea that like you can just learn javascript for depending on like the marketing of the various boot camps like three months four months like these yeah. crazy time frames and it'll be super easy you get this high-paying job this remote culture and then once you do that you're like really bought in to whatever yeah. tech stack you learned and pretty much every boot camp these days, except for boot dev, which isn't really a boot yeah. camp, but the whole other thing is teaching JavaScript, right? Yeah. And I think the best engineers are not afraid to learn new things. Yeah. Like you're using a tech stack. Like the best engineers that I've met and worked with have been the ones that are like super excited to learn new things. Yeah. Right? No, I think, and I think it applies outside of tech too. I think there's something about being open-minded <laughs> being okay to explore new things that you've never explored I, that's driven all of my career i've never been just like happy doing the same thing for years i've always wanted to float around and be exposed to new stuff uh yeah i think there's a lot to that i don't know why we start everybody to your point on the boot camps like why does everyone start out on the front end and why do we funnel new engineers into this very confusing space uh, maybe it's it goes one and maybe because that's the best place to start people it's a much bigger ecosystem so it's much more jumbled but i just feel if you're taking a new person into this career and you're like hey you want to be a developer let's learn react and use effect and and css you're gonna need some css because you're gonna hate that it looks awful and oh you need to deploy it somewhere here's the, there's just so many things as a front-end developer 
today, I feel like it'd be so overwhelming. It's like, why not just, here's a CLI. Let's build a little a CLI tool that like spits out a Stop describing my curriculum. <laughs> oh, for real? Is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't, okay, so uh, Boot Dev is doing it right. We don't fuck with HTML and CSS. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, just too it's much. A... It's too much at, at first, especially. And then <laughs> it's not just HTML and CSS. It's like most people get funneled in React specifically. And I feel like that just has so many new things you have to think about. And I don't know. I, I just feel like there needs to be more boot devs. We need to start people in different places. I don't think it needs to be the front end. I I, I completely agree. You Hopefully would. that goes without saying. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, here, here's my here's like my theory as to why really yeah, quickly. Um, I'd love to know. Feedback loop. So one of the hardest things, or, or, or what I should say is what everyone who wants to get into development yeah. wants is to have a website do a thing. Yeah. And so if you want a quick feedback loop, the, the fastest way to give that win to a student is to be like, here's 10 lines of HTML, save yeah. it, open your browser. Yep. And that's fine. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but it, it somehow evolved over the years from, okay, we'll start here because A, it's like easy to learn. Like that sounds mean, but like it, it kind of no, is. Yeah. Like you get started pretty quickly. There's hu- There was huge demand in 2015, 2016 for front-end devs. There was demand for every kind of dev. Yeah. And so it almost just became, in my opinion, like this rote script of you have to start with HTML if you're going to be a developer. Like, yeah. Duh. Yeah. Like, first of all, that's only web development. Second of all, that's only front-end web development. I was just pulling stats on this last year. There's twice as many ba- like self-identified back-end developers in the world as front-end developers. Wow. Um, I did and, not know this. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, but like tech influencers are it's 10 to one of like yeah, front yeah. End to, the trends the front end. end twitter's very front end heavy which I, I don't understand that either there's so many parts of this that i would love to have all the answers and just understand how things got the way that they are i, I guess like i think you can have a feedback loop in a cli too but i get that it's not as approachable maybe seeing text it's not change or something you know, yeah, people yeah, yeah. feel like they didn't build. That's the biggest struggle for me is yeah. starting people with Python and I do start them on the CLI. It's like, yeah, you're building an application here that does some pretty crazy stuff, but it's getting students to understand like, it's okay that it's it, you interacting with it through a CLI. Like most of the world's yeah. infrastructure is CLI applications. Yeah, like, yeah. Servers are CLI applications. I'm glad boot dev exists. You, you can, you can be the answer now to like, why is everything start people? <laughs> There's not everything. There are things that are starting people in different places. And to your point, not just web development. There's so many other types of programming. I think people starting on hardware, like the first time I messed, I was eight, 10 years into my career before I messed with a raspberry Pi or whatever. And that just opens up so many new things in your brain. I think that's yeah. like a very engaging hands-on way to start learning programming. You have to flash little floppy. Yeah, flashing Arduinos. With like yeah, it's just like a whole thing. Is... Yeah. yeah, it's fun. It is. It is very fun. Way more fun than React, personally, I think. But <laughs> yeah, you don't have you don't have to deal with Webpack, so it's already. Done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this has been absolutely fantastic, Adam. Uh, uh, I loved it. I, I love having this conversation. Maybe in the future we'll have to have you back chat more about uh, some other stuff. Where I'm can around. people find you, find you online? Yeah, where can yeah. Where can so they... it's funny, Adam Dev. Uh, it's my username, but it's also my personal site. It has links to all my stuff. So adam.dev, that'll get you my Twitch, my YouTube, whatever, Twitter. Cool. That's your last name, right? Dot dev. Yeah. 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 No, it's actually middle name dot. Yeah. Last name dev. Adam dot dev. I love it. (laughs) I love it. Cool. Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah. Thank you, uh, Lane. This was great. All right. We'll see you.